how do we be more intentional about making sure that these communities are a part of ACOs? Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Josh welcomes Dr. Keisha Davis, Allidade's Vice President of Health Equity, to discuss the Medicare Innovation Center's white paper on their vision for the next 10 years. I'm Josh Israel. Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm a medical director here at Allidade, and I'm glad to welcome back to the show Dr. Keisha Davis. Keisha is Allidade's Vice President of Health Equity. And today we're going to talk about the Medicare Innovation Center's white paper on their vision for the next 10 years. So welcome back to the show, Keisha. Thanks, Josh. It's always a pleasure to be here. So as you know, CMS Innovation Center put out a, a paper describing their goals for the next 10 years. There were five main goals. One of them is advancing health equity. We did an earlier show with Farzad Mostashari, Travis Broom, and Sean Cavanaugh covering the overarching strategy, but we'd love to focus with you on what you think of the goals for advancing health equity. I'll just start by reading out what the Medicare Innovation Center has outlined, and that is that they intend to embed health equity in every aspect of the CMS Innovation Center's new models and increase a focus on underserved populations. And we can get into some of the specifics that they outline, but just would love to get your thoughts on, on that as a goal. Yeah, thank you. You know, I think this is just a really big um, step forward as we think about advancing health equity, really not just as a one-off by itself, but really embedding it throughout everything that CMS is doing and really having that focus on underserved populations and vulnerable people. Um, you know, health equity can't stand and, and exist off in a corner by itself. Um, and so really making it part of their core strategy going forward was one of the five key objectives um, and how that work is going to infuse everything that the Innovation Center is doing. I think it's just a really big step forward. I'm really excited. Yeah, thanks for that. And so let's look specifically at what they describe as the aim. So uh, they list three main ones. So first, that all new models will require participants to collect and report demographic data on their beneficiaries and data on social needs and social determinants of health. Uh, the second is that new models will include patients from historically underserved populations. Lastly, to identify areas for reducing inequalities at the population level, such as avoidable admissions. So let's start with the first one, that all new models will require collection of data on who the beneficiaries are. And I guess we can start with, really, they don't? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really surprising and maybe a little bit troubling how hard it is to get really specific in this area. Um, even Allidate itself has struggled with how do we really get demographic data? We like to refer to it as real data, race, ethnicity, language, and sex, and getting specific. And there's, you know, a couple ways to think about it beyond just, um, do we have race and ethnicity data? Nobody's really asked for it, but also is that race and ethnicity data self-reported? Not just somebody looked across the room at somebody and checked a box off, but are we actually asking patients to self-report their, their race and ethnicity data? There are issues in terms of how it's collected, how it's tracked, uh, the buckets that are used. And so systems use different buckets and how they define uh, different categories of race and ethnicity. At the real core of that, it's being able to say, to be able to look at a high level, are there groups that are being uh, unfairly disadvantaged in a certain quality measure, in a certain metric? And until we are able to have that stratification really robustly, it can be hard to tell. Um, and when you look at those rolled up numbers without being able to really dig down deeper into those, into those stratification, you can find that populations are being missed and left behind. So I think it, it baffles people and it even baffles me sometimes trying to really get and better understand that data. But 
that is really at the core of any health equity strategy of figuring out who are the people that we're trying to serve and who are the people that may be being disadvantaged. Uh, is it primarily a technical issue, this collection of data, or is there something about habits? I think it's a little bit of both. There's certainly some technical issues that are involved in you know, cross-collaboration of systems, as I was saying, you know, in terms of these buckets, but there's also habits of you know, putting it on the forms and asking folks to fill it out and getting in the habit of being comfortable reporting that data, collecting that data, and really looking at it. And I think those are conversations that we are in the beginning of starting to have. And I think, you know, I'll say that not everybody is comfortable quite yet looking at race data and really understanding where those discrepancies may lie, but it forces us to then start to work to uh, mitigate them. And until we look and identify, it's really difficult to come up with solutions. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' statement. I may botch the details of it, that something along the lines of the, you know, the best way to uh, have people stop being racist is to stop breaking us up by race. And the thought is, well, you know, nice, nice for you to say, easy for you to say, you know, you're probably getting, getting things pretty good and your healthcare is probably very good as well. Right. I, you know, it's an interesting statement, but if you don't take some time to look at those folks at the bottom, then they'll continue to be hidden. So the second point, uh, the second aim of the CMS Innovation Center regarding health equity is that new models will include patients from historically underserved populations and safety net providers. And again, my response, and this may be the case with everything with equity, is really, they they don't currently do that? Right. It's a great point. You would think, well, why aren't they involved? Why aren't they included? Of course, underserved populations would benefit. And, you know, when we look at patients, vulnerable patients, minority patients, we find that they actually do better when their physician is part of an ACO. And so that's a great benefit. However, when we look at ACOs, we find that they tend not to be in vulnerable communities. They're less likely to be in communities of patient of poverty, uh, where there are low rates of high school education and communities that are have uh, large percentages of minorities. And so while we know these patients do better when they're part of an ACO, they are not getting the opportunity to benefit. And so how do we be more intentional about making sure that these communities are a part of ACOs? They're Patients need it. They need the you know high quality doctors who are trying to meet quality metrics and working to um, save money in the system, but also working to keep them out of the emergency room and decrease admissions and you know make sure that they're getting preventive visits and well annual wellness visits. They benefit from that just like everybody else. So how do we make sure that we are intentionally including them? Same thing with community health centers who are serving many of these vulnerable patients they have not always intentionally been included in ACOs. And I'll say, I think one of the things that is exciting about Allidate is that we are very intentionally working to um, include community health centers in our ACO programs. And we are also starting to intentionally work with doctors who are serving those vulnerable communities. And so we have a, a pod of practices in Arkansas that were recruited specifically because they serve a, a majority minority patient population and really bringing them into the fold, it's a benefit for those doctors and their practices, but also for those patients in the community. I'll say some of the things that we've found in working with those practices, they are often serving patients in a community that has been historically underinvested in. And that comes to bear in the issues that their patients have, it comes to bear in the practices. We have a group of practices that we've recruited that have a majority minority patient population. And when we look at what they need, we find that they really need additional investments in 
infrastructure support, really around modernization, technical assistance, practice management support to really be able to be successful in value-based care. And so, you know, Allidate is starting to think about how can we support them? Same thing is true for community health centers. When you think about community health centers, a dollar invested in community health centers, a dollar invested back in their community. And for these independent primary care practices, for these community health centers, when we are helping their practices and doctors do better, yes, we're helping those docs do better, but those patients get to benefit. They are doing better. And that community does better. That's creating jobs for that community. One of our docs in the Mosaic Pod has been able to um, expand and hire an additional medical assistant who's coming from the community that's creating more jobs. And you really see this ability for practices to start to thrive. And I think that's something that we really want for all of our practices. And we definitely want it for those practices that are serving communities, vulnerable communities that may not have been able to benefit in the past. So that all is a great lead into the last one, which in some ways may be the hardest, which is identify areas for reducing inequalities at the population level. And I think this one is challenging for two main reasons, speaking very broadly. One is the more intentional. So neglecting Medicaid, you know, I don't think that's an accident. I think that has to do with political power. I think that has to do with who has Medicaid versus who has Medicare. And then the more subtle, the sort of insidious way that inequity gets built into things. Um, the way even the example you gave of accountable care organizations being great for patients. And I don't think anybody that designed that model would have known or predicted that fewer people of color, fewer minorities would be enrolled in ACOs. So the ways in which um, sort of the subtle structural way that things get set up can disadvantage certain populations. So what, what do you think about ways that CMS should be really identifying these areas, sort of finding all the little subtle ways that um, racism and classism get built into the healthcare system? Uh, that's such a great question, Josh. You know, I think at the core is really getting back kind of to that first question of being willing to look you know, somebody asked me, well, what's the right percentage? What's the right number of, you know, black patients or black docs that should be in an ACO? I don't know. I don't know what that right percentage is, but that can't be an excuse to not look. Say, so, well, if we don't know what the right number should be, well, then it's, you know, then maybe we shouldn't look. I think once you look, you can be able to say, huh, well, now I can see that that what that disparity is, how does that relate to the rest of the country in terms of, you know, percentages? When we look at an area and, you know, that may be highly minority, do we have in our ACOs a large percentage of minority docs who are serving that population? Why or why not, you know, being willing to, to look at that? You know, when you think about that population level, sometimes it can feel really hard to feel like you have a any type of role to play in being able to move the needle on a thing and say, well, you know, there's so much built in. There's so much racism and classism that doesn't have anything to do with me and this patient that's in front of me. We're both kind of stuck in the system. Mm -hmm. And I'll say we, you know, one, we each have a role to play in, you know, recognizing our own biases with that individual, but we also have our role to play at the population level and at the community level in terms of understanding what system our patients are are working and operating in. And so I think even our role as, uh, as clinicians in how we start to advocate to change that, right? So, you know, if you're a doc and you're seeing patients who have a lot of asthma and you've gotten really good at treating asthma, 
it's also on you to start thinking about why do so many patients in my community have asthma? Do I have a disproportionate amount of asthma in my community compared to the, you know, the neighboring town or the neighboring county? It requires you to then lift your head up and say, is there something in my community, in this community that makes patients more at risk? Is there a environmental factor? Is there a industrial plant that is close by? Is there, you know, housing that may have certain infestations? Those all have a role to play in thinking about our patients and our communities. And there are advocacy routes that you can go down to start thinking about, you know, how can I advocate better for, for my community to have healthier patients? But at the end of the day, it's having an understanding of how those things interplay with your population. I think when you think about the inequities at the, you know, population level and, you know, avoidable admissions, certainly we each have a role to play in that one-on-one -on -one patient, how we prevent that one admission, that one ER visit. But we each also have a role to play in how we think more broadly about those factors that are causing our patients to have more admissions and to have more ER visits. And so taking a step back, doing things like screening for social determinants of health on an individual level, but also screening for social determinants at a community level, how you understand um, the factors that are at play in your community. There are county health rankings, health landscape, there are a number of different tools that can be helpful to better understand the role that environment and community play in your patients' lives. And that you as a clinician are going to be ultimately helping them to mitigate and navigate in their health. I think that sometimes the specific concrete examples can bring the systemic issues a little into, into a little bit better focus. I know for me recently, I was hearing an explanation of how risk coding plays into that. Risk coding for the blessedly uninitiated is the way that Medicare keeps score of how sick patients are and essentially reimburses the accountable care organization different amounts depending how sick patients are. And patients who are poor, patients who are minorities tend to have less diagnoses. So they are less risk coded, we might say, or uh, there are, there's something called the risk cap. So how much can your, your risk score increase as an accountable care organization from one year to the next, how much will Medicare reimburse you for the sickness of your patients? And the way it's set up, it has turned out to disadvantage physicians who work with poor patients, with minority patients. And it's so complicated. It took me a while working at Allidade before I understood the whole thing. Are there other examples of that, that that you think can help explain the way in which these sort of unintentional but systemic things really have a huge impact on equity? You know, the, the one that comes to mind is when we think about kidney failure. And so the uh, algorithm that we use for measuring GFR and uh, creatinine clearance has a race-based factor within it. And so because of that race-based factor, African-Americans have a, uh, their GFR looks better, which means they're less likely to get on a list for dialysis or kidney transplant. So even when the number is the same, it's factored in, but this coefficient is factored in. And so as a result, African-Americans are then less likely to uh, get recommended for dialysis earlier when it could be, um, uh, proactively managed, or they might be able to get peritoneal dialysis, which can be less invasive. They are less likely to be referred to the nephrologist sooner so that they could receive treatments that might prevent them from 
uh, having to go on dialysis uh, altogether. And so what ends up happening is you have people who then fall into dialysis, uh, which crash into dialysis, we often call it, which can be, which is very expensive, very disruptive. And so because race is factored into this equation in a way that doesn't make sense, and we've started to see guidelines that move away from using this factor, you see worse outcomes in African-Americans for renal failure. And I think that's another one where this is just something that's taught. It's insidious. It's part of, you know, built into the system. Continue to see little hints of things like this. There's another factor uh, that we see in maternity care around race that results in more women uh, being referred for C-section, more Black women being referred for C-section. And so, again, you see these things that are taught in medical school and residency perpetuated that result in worse outcomes that are predicated on a false sense of race. Yeah, that's a great example. You know, it's hard not to glaze over if you're not a medical professional and someone is talking about glomerular filtration rates, uh, and yet there's inequity in it that will lead to uh, more Black patients dying. Dr. Keisha Davis, Allidade's Vice President of Health Equity, thanks as always for your smart thoughts on this. Josh, as always, a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. This episode of The ACO Show was produced by Dan Evelyn. Our theme music is by Donna Korn. You can find previous episodes on our website, Allidade.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.